0: Hello and welcome to NanoReach, a scientific outreach podcast by the Nanomedicine Research Group at the Institute of Chemical Technology, Mumbai. In this episode, I talk to Devashree, who is a PhD student at NRG. We'll get to know more about her journey and her research. Hello Devashree, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad that you could make it.
1: Hi Pat. Yeah, it's my pleasure to, you know, do a podcast with you.
0: I wanted to start this conversation by asking you what made you pursue research in the first place?
1: Okay, so to give a, a brief background, mm-hmm. I, uh, I have done my M.Tech in biotechnology from uh, D.Y. Patil Pune. Okay. And uh, I, uh, so my dissertation was for one year, whole year.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: after that, uh, for one and a half year extra, I have worked in the same lab. Uh, under Dr. Nilesh Kumar Sharma, and uh, he was a bri- he a brilliant scientist who you know knows how to sculpt a student's curious brain into making it uh, more of uh, you know making the science more fun
2: wow. to explore. Mm-hmm. So
1: I think the whole credit goes to him because he you know planted the whole curious mind,
2: mm.
1: you know it turned uh, the whole uh, curriculum into a very Fun time, wow! And uh, working with him, he, you know, made us understand that uh, how to find particular things which can be explored more, which can be known in detail,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that sort. So I think, yeah, that raised a lot of curiosity in me. The whole phase was very. So, like mind blowing
0: for me. Mm-hmm. So, you'd say that your experience as a master's student and a JRF, it pushed you to pursue a PhD eventually? Yes,
1: absolutely. Okay, nice. So,
0: you know, while I was preparing for this podcast, I went through your Google Scholar profile and I was so impressed by the amount of research you have done on cancer before joining NRG. So, I wanted to ask, like, what aspect of cancer research did you work on?
1: Okay, so um, the whole uh, study was based on uh, analyzing different, um, you know, microenvironments in uh, different cancers. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it was a glioblastoma, it was breast cancer, it was uh, a liver cancer. So I have worked on multiple, uh, multiple types of cancer cells, and I have checked on uh, different mi- uh, micro environment and how it affects the uh, established cancer cells and their progression. So my uh, visitation was uh, based on a glioblastoma drug that Mm -hmm. is temozolomide and its effect on a breast cancer cell. So that area was not explored much. And uh, I actually wanted to see how, you know, mechanism changes or how the cells react to it. So that was the basic funda that took ahead this research and ultimately led to a m- number of publications mm-hmm. but uh, the whole aim was to identify smaller things and focus on them so that uh, you know you make up a good story out of it. Yeah. So in cancer per se um, how a cancer adapts in itself in a human body you know uh, we hmm. give multiple uh, toxic treatments to it and yet finds a way to get away with the treatment it still uh, progresses yeah it
2: develops even, resistance towards it, that routine. exactly
1: even a single cell can you know ruin the whole physiology yes so the whole mechanism is quite interesting mm-hmm. it, it is definitely deleterious for the human body but it is very interesting to know how it does that
0: hmm. So, from a research perspective, it's fascinating. Yes. So, I wanted to ask, like, um, did you aim to do cancer research or did it happen all of a sudden? Like, what was the story behind cancer research?
1: Okay. So, in my master's, so my uh-huh. master's course was an integrated course of a five-year, uh, five-year program. Okay. In which it was B-Tech plus M-Tech. Oh. And so, I got one consolidated degree. And uh, meanwhile, uh, when my lectures were going on in the second year of my course, I had joined, uh, you know, I wanted to help a professor of mine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so she was working on completely a bacterial background. Okay. And initially, I started working with her so that I, with the thought that I learn some different skills, I, I learned some different ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that thought, I joined uh, the bacterial the microbiology field. And um, that was a different phase altogether. It was about learning how to isolate uh, bacteria from uh, hot water spring samples. Mm. And uh, it was quite extensive. Okay. So the whole bacterial thought did not you know, catch my mind in that. And mm. you know, I couldn't work, I couldn't uh, focus on that uh, particular area. Okay. that
2: much. But
1: I was always clear that I wanted to explore this cancer research field itself.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: in during my dissertation, I thought that no, I don't want to go in this area. So discontinued the project and I started with, uh, started uh, asking my uh, professor Nilesh sir that uh, whether he, ha- he can accommodate me in his lab and we can, you know, start working on some uh, idea pertaining to cancer field. Okay,
0: so- uh, moving on like you did I think one year of dissertation followed by one year of JRF yes okay so how did your journey at NRG begin like how did you find out about the lab and what motivated you to do research here
1: okay so um, one of my colleagues who had recently joined uh, Deva Patil as a uh, as a faculty she told me about uh, she had already passed from ICT okay so she told me about uh, uh, Dr. Ratnesh and uh, his lab was working on uh, some aspect biological aspects. And I checked uh, checked uh, Ratnesar's profile, and it was very fascinating. Mm-hmm. The way he was uh, taking ahead this biologic field was yes.
2: uh,
1: it it you know captures anyone's mind. Mm. The curiosity which he also can develop it's it's very it's on a different level. Yes, you know, and it was ICT. So, Mm -hmm. the reputation, recognition matters a lot. Yes. And uh, I thought of approaching uh, Ratnesha for the same. Mm -hmm. And uh, we both were very much uh, fascinated by looking at each other's profiles. (laughs) (laughs) So, because I had a number of publications, even Mm -hmm. he, he thought of, yeah, let's give her a chance, which turned very lucky for me. Yes. And uh, yeah, we got to know each other and uh, I'm in his lab right now. Hmm. So the journey has been completely different than what it was in Deva Patel in a very good way. Okay. So yeah, here yeah. also we are exploring every uh, scientific problem from a different uh, perspective.
0: Yeah. So for me, like when I was about to apply for the science communication role, I looked up on the nanomedicine uh, website. Mm-hmm. And I found that there are diverse groups of researchers working on diverse area of uh, research, and what I found was the common thing between them was they all were aimed at contributing somehow to the society, and that that's what impressed me. So, what broad research area are you working at NRG?
1: Okay, so when I joined NRG, mm-hmm. I was uh, in, like I was appointed on a project which was completely. Uh, based on a bacterial field again. Okay. So I thought that I don't want to c- carry out uh, the whole PhD work in a bacterial uh, field.
2: Yeah.
1: I o- wanted to jump back into the cancer field, which I always craved for. Mm-hmm. So uh, I finished up a project based on uh, probiotic research. Okay. And then meanwhile, I was completely thinking about how to develop a cancer model, how to develop a, a device that can accommodate different type of cancers. You mm-hmm. can study different uh, mechanisms, drug interactions. Uh, I, As and when I got time, I went through the literature. I thought of, you know, sculpting my work in the... In, in this field itself, in the cancer research field itself. Yes.
2: Hmm.
1: So, I was sure that, yeah, okay, cancer research has to be So, I started looking upon the different models, which, hmm. uh, you know, lacks researchers' interest. Hmm. And I found that uh, the retina is a particularly a very sensitive tissue. Okay. And there are a number of diseases associated with, uh, uh, with, uh, with our retina. huh there, are, there is a retinoblastoma cancer as well, which happens only in children below five years. Oh. So that also increases the complexity of this tissue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, yeah, my, like I started drafting my research, um, you know, work around this tissue itself altogether. Okay. So developing on different models of ret- like pertaining to this particular retina tissue.
2: Hmm. Fine.
0: So, like, that's how you transited from, like, cancer research, core cancer research to mm-hmm. same cancer research, but um, in and around I, I, huh, retina. Yeah. Okay. So, now, uh, like, I've, I've, I know that you're working on developing an in vitro retinoblastoma model. So, that means that you're developing a model in the laboratory that could be used to understand more about retinoblastoma, right? Yes. Okay. So, how is this model different from the traditional models that are being used? Uh,
1: Okay. So, uh, retinoblastoma models are already there because there are established uh, retinoblastoma cancer cells, okay? Okay. Which are there in market. But uh, what lacks in that is um, the ability to mimic the whole tissue. So, Hmm. uh, scientists have uh, explored individual cells and the impact of drug on individual cells. But there is uh, like the literature lacks the uh, combination of um, uh, combination of cell types and their effect on one another. Mm -hmm. So there are see, so in the whole physiology, what happens is there is a retinoblastoma tumor, which has been developed and underlying that are the several uh, cellular layers, which also get impacted. Mm so hmm. in some cases there are like there are cases reported which uh, has retinoblastoma metastasized into different type of cancer okay see after all it's a cancer cell it will you know leach out and try yes. to find a way to progress in completely different organ hmm. so i wanted to explore how we can develop a consolidated model where we can study the drug interaction the effect of uh, like cell to cell tight how how they affect our different uh, cell, cell types how metastasis can occur if hmm. we can replicate that thing here then probably we can you know look ahead into um a, a larger picture would be to save animals that are used in preclinical studies
2: okay hmm.
1: so with that thought uh, we tried to develop a triple culture model in for a retinoblastoma hmm. uh, cancer
2: okay
0: so, basically, you're developing this model to overcome the limitations of the traditional models. And one of the most important limitations is that the traditional models, they don't replicate the complexities of the cancer in humans, right?
2: Yes. yes. Okay.
0: So, is this a 3D model that you're building?
1: Uh, yes, you can call it a 3D model, but it's a static one. So, uh, what I mean by static is mm-hmm. there is no continuous uh, perfusion of culture mediums. Okay. So hmm. this is just I have used cell cell inserts mm-hmm. uh, onto which uh, these cell lines are uh, you know distributed in a different fashion.
0: Okay, so you are combining uh, three cell lines. Yes, okay. it is a triple culture model. Okay, nice. Hmm.
1: So I have been testing different drug treatments and how to minimize the toxicity of uh, drugs that we. That, that are commonly being used by using some additional proteins,
2: okay. uh, which
1: can, you know, altogether lower the co- toxicity because this is a cancer which happens in small children. Hmm. It, 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 they are very young to uh, face the uh, whole chemotherapy sessions and hmm. there are m- many more complications that occur even after they grow up. Okay. So, to uh, altogether to minimize the drug load, the mm-hmm. toxicity which they have to bear, I am mm-hmm. uh, trying to lower the concentration of the uh, okay. chemotherapeutic drug along mm-hmm. with uh, some additional proteins.
2: Okay.
0: So, is, are there any other projects that you are working on? Uh,
1: yes. Yeah, so, my PhD uh, topic has three different uh, domains in it. One being the retinoblastoma which we already discussed. Mm-hmm second one was the uh, like uh, development of a microfluidic device okay and uh, developing a retinal culture over it
2: okay so
1: and uh, so microfluidic device is a device where it, it, it's like it's sort of a chip mm-hmm. on which uh, you have a continuous flow of uh, media with mm-hmm. growth new nu- like growth nutrients and uh, so there is a polymer which is used to des- dev- design this uh, model, okay. this microfluidic model, and in this model, we develop different cell types. Mm-hmm. So the whole um, idea behind developing this was to generate a, a co-culture model that using two cell types, which mm-hmm. are interdependent. Okay so uh, in this pro- in this model what we have done is we have used retinal epithelial cells
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, retinal precursor cells so precursor cells are um, are a, a stage before they differentiate into photoreceptor Re- cells mm-hmm. so what happens is your epithelial layers acts as a feeder layer acts as a you know base for the development of photoreceptors yes And I have just tried to mimic that in this microfluidic device.
2: Okay.
0: So, uh, to give a perspective, like how big is this device? Um,
1: To go into the dimensions of it, it is uh, almost 3, like 5 centimeter by 3 centimeter.
2: Oh. Yeah, it's a
1: very small, small device. This model, you know, it can be, it is very handy. Hmm. Even the complexity, considering the complexity, the model is very handy, and you can real time. You can image it. You can analyze the growth of cells. You can tag them with uh, fluorophores, and uh, you know have a look at how it progresses, how it is developing.
0: Okay, so basically, so that- you're developing a retina on a chip, and which replicates the cellular functionality of a retina, right?
2: Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely right. Mm-hmm.
0: So, in what way is this model advantageous over the other models, other traditional models like uh, consider animals?
1: The uh, main significance of using a microfluidic uh, approach here mm-hmm. was to uh, enable a continuous flow, as it is been uh, seen in the human body, human yes. physiology. Mm-hmm. So, we are just trying to replicate some uh, parameters that are. Uh, uh, similar to the in vivo conditions, hmm. so we are trying to see if the gaseous exchange, if the exchange of nutrients, the growth factors, uh, you know, assessing the cytokine profile, if it is possible in this microfluidic device, mm-hmm. and it can be replicated to a uh, a proper tissue which is, you know, functioning hmm. in a human body.
2: Okay. So we
1: are just trying to see whether uh, if the cells are sub- uh, subjected to stress. Hmm. Is it actually showing the effect as it is showing in a human body or not? Oh. So how exactly cells react to uh, a specific uh,
2: stress, b- growth
1: factor oh. or uh, mm-hmm. a stress which we give it? Okay. So all the parameters can be monitored on this smaller device. And what it will happen is if we are able to mimic every parameter here, mm-hmm. this can be scaled up and uh, many of the biopharma companies can you know easily use it Mm. for if you if say you have 10 drug molecules okay so you can you can directly put an array of experiments where you have 10 10 different devices uh, with respective uh, controls in comparison Mm -hmm. and you can just test your drug then and there right so your time is saved your uh, your uh, cost is, like cost mm. for building up every uh, assembly is saved and your um, resources are also saved
2: right. mm-hmm.
1: so usually what happens is in pharma companies they use uh, like they put a drug for a preclinical study wherein mm-hmm. animals are used to test these different type of drugs mm-hmm. so after the drug treatment the animals are been sacrificed to understand what happens in their physiology they are the whole the particular organ in which the uh, drug is subjected or drug interaction has to be understood has to be studied
2: mm-hmm. it is
1: the animal is sacrificed and the organ is studied yes so what we can do is we can just like this technology can eliminate this preclinical studies altogether hmm. once it has been completely validated
2: yes right
0: and what's your third objective of the phd project
1: Okay. So third objective per, uh, like pertains to uh, another retinal disease. Okay. So the first objective was retinoblastoma. It is already a diseased model. Yes. Okay, the second one was to develop a microfluidic uh, model
2: mm-hmm.
1: wherein where we use uh, epithelial cells and the growth factors from that to make the precursor, retinal precursor cells differentiate into different type of photoreceptor cells. Okay. And the third one was uh, regarding a disease called AMD, that is age-related macular degeneration. Mm -hmm. And uh, this disease happens due to accumulated stress signals along the, uh, as and when the age increases above 50 or 60 years of age, Mm -hmm. a human body starts to deteriorate and the coping mechanism is also compromised. So when the stress signals accumulate and uh, usually they are flowing into your system but the bigger tissues might bigger organs might not respond to it uh, that in in a, in a in like causing that much of a complexity mm-hmm. but uh, these complexities are seen to be affected to uh, in our retina so what happens is uh, as and when these um, stress accumulates and you know targets a spe- specific retinal tissue mm-hmm. Your, it is found that the vision is compromised and this is a progressive disease
0: okay so it could lead to blindness as well
1: yes it le- leads to blindness vision loss because what happens is they these so a photoreceptor layer is very sensitive hmm. so um it is like even in day-to-day life if you can see after a st- whole stressful day your eyes get stressed after looking at a screen right. or at some bright light mm-hmm. your eyes get stressed at the end of the day
2: mm-hmm.
1: so you can feel that stress yes. so that is when your retina is trying to recalibrate itself and you know uh, say that okay we have to f- perform is. our uh, uh, f- functions properly mm-hmm. and the next morning you find when you have the particular rest
2: yes yes, yes.
1: so what happens is the stress signals the light, be it light, be it lifestyle changes. These stress response, what it does is it uh, it goes and uh, directly acts your photoreceptor's layer. Okay. And they start disrupting this layer from the base layer that is the epithelial layer. Mm-hmm. So then what happens? And photoreceptor cells they have very. um lesser precursor cells to regenerate themselves
0: okay so then they don't grow back as fast as yeah other they cells. don't
1: grow back and at the at a later age 60 or 65 70 so at that time the body do not have enough cells to regenerate itself yes hmm. so that is when your whole body starts aging so wh- when it starts aging you don't have any reserved cell bank that you know will regenerate every every cell of your tissue right And once it has been compromised, it cannot be grown back easily. Mm -hmm. So even at that stage, the drug treatment, whichever uh, uh, doctors prescribe, Mm -hmm. might not be useful or might not help in regaining back the vision that has been compromised. Mm -hmm. So what we are trying to do is we are trying to replicate the same model uh, okay. Which is there for age-related macular degeneration, that is AMD. Hmm. We are trying to develop the same diseased model so that we can have better uh, prognostic and curative way for developing multiple drugs that can scavenge these um, stress signals.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. even uh, is this three D model as well?
1: Uh, then no, this, uh, yeah, it is a 3D model because it is a co culture model, and uh, you know, um, there is development of different uh lipid layers between these cell uh, two, two cell types, okay. So, yes, this is also a sort of a 3D model, it does not involve any scaffold based,
2: uh-huh.
1: but it is a 3D model, like we can visualize it in a z axis as well.
0: Oh, okay, that's great, hmm. yeah, okay, fine. So, uh Like, so let me just summarize your research, right? So basically you're working on different eye disorders, like retinoblastoma,
1: age-related macular macular degeneration. Okay. And uh, the other one was the microfluidic uh, device on which normal retina is being developed. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So what I observe is, um, like through your research, you are developing better models that can potentially be used as alternatives to traditional models like animals. So, why yes. do you think it is important to have alternative to animals?
1: Uh, so, animal models, what happens in animal model is mm-hmm. uh, sometimes they are not, uh, see, in, in, I'll say in terms of retina. Mm-hmm. So, animals like rats, mice, they do not replicate the whole macula which is there in the human bo- human eye. Okay. So they lack that macula over there. Yes. So even if we have to understand a physiology, like a drug, uh, pharmacodynamics of a drug mm-hmm. in animal, the, um, the whole system will be not replicated in the human body as it is. Mm-hmm. They will show a particular uh, effect on particular cells, but it might not be the same profile. For uh, for a human bo- human eye, okay. So there is some difference between using an animal model and actually implementing it in in a human body.
2: Hmm.
1: So I think to avoid the whole animal uh, like testing on animal model, what I feel is if we develop uh, specific diseased models, be it microfluidic or be it static microfluidic hmm. being more. Um, Advantageous because uh, it will be able to replicate more of a physiological parameter. Yes. Hmm. So, uh, if we develop a microfluidic model of particular disease,
2: mm-hmm. so
1: we can anytime use that and study all the parameters, study the distribution pattern of the drug, we can also attach different, um, different organ-specific uh, models to it to see what happens in the ADM, in the absorption, you know, and uh, excretion metabolism and excretion mm. me- uh, mechanism of the drug. So we can create the whole human body, this whole uh, distribution pattern of the drug as and when it enters into the body and it leaves the body.
2: Mm-hmm. So, so we can
1: see it in a very uh, orthogonal approach. Yes.
2: So it can and be said. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. One more point I would mm-hmm. like to add is that in this particular in vitro model, we can also develop a personalized models, which will be, which will allow us to focus on a personalized medicine or personalized therapy for that particular patient.
2: Okay. Mm -hmm. So
1: the, some of the cells can be isolated, it can be cultured, it can be grown and it can, you know, allow us to uh, understand the mechanism for that particular patient and allow us to um, uh, you know, pick out like some drugs that are that will act more specifically to towards that patient, patient. profile, mm,
0: yes, mm, interesting. So, it can be said that you're developing models uh, which could minimize, uh, you know, animal usage by providing more accurate and predictable results,
2: right? Yes, yes, mm. yeah. so,
1: so hmm. trying uh, like uh, the testing a drug on animal model, it is very time consuming. It requires multiple ethical consents.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And uh, after that, even some, like there is a 90% 90 chance that a drug might fail Mm. in in the whole drug development pipeline. And that is what happens. So the failure rate for for any drug to enter into a clinical trial might decrease if this technology is used Mm. or, you know, uh, you you can have a preliminary understanding as well as and get a detailed mechanism out of it.
0: Yep. Hmm. So fine. Now uh, I think uh, I'm done with the research related topics that I wanted to discuss with you. Okay. The next there are next few questions that I want to ask personally because someday I aspire to pursue a PhD too. Okay. Okay. So I wanted to ask importantly how do you deal with setbacks or failures i don't want to call it failures because it has a negative connotation to it but mm-hmm. as a researcher on a daily basis we do face with experimental setbacks or certain setbacks in the laboratory so and everyone has a coping mechanism to it so what's your coping mechanism to experimental setbacks D-
1: talking about setbacks um, i think uh, thinking about it from a different angle really helps because see, after we are researchers, hmm. we have that curious mind that if a experiment is failing, why it is failing, yes. how it is failing. Hmm. So if we have tried it a 100 times, and we have failed for 99 times, we know what not, not to, to do. do. And one way how to do it. Yeah, hmm. though That is just one way, it's not that significant, we need to replicate it many more times. Hmm. But uh, we are very much sure that we can document a protocol based on how to avoid failures. Right. Hmm. So I think uh, uh, dealing with failures is a part and parcel. But um, we have a dynamic uh, environment in our lab. Okay. So there are people working in different domains altogether. Hmm. One is one like me. I'm working in uh, in a cancer. Uh, Pertaining subject. Another one will be working on a protein characterization subject, uh, mm. like domain. So it is a very wide array of uh, 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 like friends and student setup we have here. Mm. So their insights help a lot in this uh, setback, as you said. Now mm. that if I fail, their aspect of looking at my failed experiment might be completely different they can they can they can you know guide me not not exactly how the experiment should work mm-hmm. but they can address a problem from their different angle and okay. that angle helps us think okay yeah this can also be a a, a way to think about it mm-hmm. so uh, uh, like considering um, different people's approach to look yep. at that problem also helps a lot mm-hmm. in this way right And uh, interacting, going out and clearing your mind does help in a field like ours.
2: Yes. So, you
0: know, the next question is one of my favorite questions that I ask to reach So the question is, what is an unexpected skill that you picked up during a research? But this skill has come in handy to you in your life outside a lab. So in my case... Uh, during my master's, I was working on drosophila to understand growth. And Mm -hmm. uh, during this time, I used to cook a lot of fly food weekly. And the fly food has to be perfect in the sense that um, the cooking time has to be optimum. The quality and quantity of ingredients has to be perfect or the fly food will be a waste. So cooking this meal regularly, it has helped me you know, obtain or acquire uh, cooking skills that I used because I used to stay away from family. Mm-hmm. So do you have any such stories that you'd like to share?
1: Um, I would just like to mention one point that mm-hmm. the, throughout my research field, what I have learned is every minute detail counts a lot, like be it time, be it your experiments, be it anything so um what happened was uh, in one of my experiments just uh, like working on this development of disease model objective mm-hmm. uh, i happened to like subject uh, a cholesterol based uh, medium to my cells okay and they formed a completely different morphology they were not stressed but mm-hmm. they formed completely different and beautiful extensions towards each other okay so uh, that th- this was just a trial experiment which i was like yeah let's see what happens
2: mm-hmm.
1: and even though there were very few cells expressing those profiles mm-hmm. but that was a topic which ha- i i had to explore more about it i had read it read about it in the literature but i couldn't find anything that is causing this difference mm-hmm. and um, you know going into this whole arena is completely mind blowing for me right now yeah. because there will they, like i may or may not find a a, a very like you know greater difference or a different pathway altogether mm-hmm. but at least i'm satisfied that okay this small change in my cell morphology is uh, is a is something to look into yes And had I not tried about tried this uh, whole new set of experiment, I might not I might not have uh, explored that my cells can behave this way Mm. as well.
0: Yeah, this is a great skill to have because, you know, having such skills fuels discoveries, scientific discoveries.
1: Yes. And one more thing is, uh, as and when you uh, do your experiments or research, whatever. Uh, so what happens is uh, you are doing a particular thing, be it drosophil or be it uh, handling cells in my my condition mm-hmm. but uh, when we are doing it, we can actually um, pictureize what can and what might happen. you know there is a whole pathway which you can imagine that okay this might this uh, growth factor might target this particular pathway. you can actually imagine the whole scenario in front of you. Mm-hmm. And that has helped me in my uh, research life as well as in my personal life. Oh, so ev- in every situation, I picturize it that way. Mm-hmm. Like, create any decision making, a smaller, bigger, any um, action which I have to take. Wow. So I can imagine it in that way that, oh, OK, if this happens, then yes, no. Uh, then this, what action will it cause? Mm-hmm. So I think this is developed. Uh, this additional personal skill which I have right now.
0: Nice. So you know, I understand that PhD is hectic and it's fun at the same time but how do you manage to squeeze out time for your hobbies? First of all, tell me what are your hobbies?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I am a rider. I like to ride bikes. Oh. And Mm Second hobby, I would say, is uh, I like to play badminton as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have developed it in like a year or so. Wow. And um, I like to read a lot. Mm -hmm. So uh, hobbies can be defined in very different ways. Yes. So these are some of the primary things which I like to do. I like to draw. I like to dance. So Hmm. there are multiple things which we we do. Right. But um, squeezing time, as you said, Mm -hmm. It is not easy to take out time from your daily schedule because, as you know, that you have things in your mind that you need to complete, mm. and uh, you know it. It becomes very difficult for you to discontinue the day when you know that okay, this this might be the result of it. Mm. So your driving force to conduct any particular experiment might uh, you know take up the whole day, take up even twenty four hours of your whole day. Yes. But if at all, some, some, this happens only in some days, but in most of the days, what happens is you get back from the lab at six, seven, eight, mm. and then, you know, you have this uh, completely drained mind. Mm. And that is when your brain signals you that, no, you have to go out and do something which you like. Mm. And automatically the, you know, you start making time for yourself because, um, how much ever you love doing your research, doing, exploring your scientific uh, work, but uh, coming out of it and leading a normal, uh, no, doing normal activities, leading yeah. a normal life is also important. important.
2: Mm.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: So one final question before we leave. Okay. So yes. do you have any advice for budding researchers?
1: So my advice would be, Mm -hmm. you don't, you should not have the fear of failures. Mm. It has happened so many times. Like Mm -hmm. it has happened with me itself. Okay. So that is the learning Mm. that uh, I am trying to uh, analyze a protein, its expression, but I know it is there, but Mm. even though it is there, it's not been expressed. Mm. I don't know why. And I, I keep on doing it, keep on doing it. And one fine day after conducting it for uh, 14 or 15 times, mm-hmm. I got it. So I knew that, uh, yeah, okay, failures are going to be there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But you should not give up the thought that uh, just because you're going to fail, you are not going to go in that path. You're not going mm-hmm. to explore it. So the fear of failure will just drag you down. It will be just an anchor in your life. And nothing will, nothing productive can come out of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, and consistency. Um, so in the starting of my PhD, it happens with everyone though. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the starting of the starting years of my PhD, I ha- I I like I was completely filled with energy. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, I have to do this, 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 this. Multiple things were planned throughout the day.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I used to accomplish those things. But then there was a time when I started experiencing, okay, this is not working out. That is not working out. And everything started to tumble down. Okay. I had a talk with my guide hmm. that uh, I am feeling so helpless right now. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, Dr. Prajakta dandekar she's mm-hmm. my guide. And she said that don't worry. Even if you don't get the results, it is okay. Hmm. But you keep working on it so that consistency was somewhere lost and it happens with everyone but uh, to regain back that uh, zest or that vigor to perform your work is also very important yes 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 absolutely so there will be days where you feel very helpless and you, know, you just wait and go mm. but uh, after that also you have to come back you have to gather energy to start again mm. So, I think that is the main advice which I would uh, give because it is very important for a PhD. PhD is a very big commitment. Yes, exactly. And uh, giving up in a very short notice just because you have experienced like failures from every aspect doesn't mean you quit it. Mm -hmm. You have to, uh, you know, pass through that whole phase where you prove to yourself and not to the world.
0: Wow, that's that's a great advice. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Uh, This brings us to the end of our podcast. Thanks a lot, Devashree, for taking out time, especially on a weekend, and talking to me on this platform.
1: Uh, Mm -hmm. Thank you, Pat, That was my pleasure to uh, interact with you. And uh, yes, I enjoyed a lot sharing my views.
0: Yes. So, all the best for your PhD.
1: Thank you so much and wish you the same. Yes, for every uh, every aspect of your life, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Bye, thank yes. you. Bye
0: bye.